Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. So when people think of efficiencies, they often think of, well, how do I make this process more efficient? And that's great. But the other question is, how do you do less of those? <laughs> right? How do you avoid right. the known the known no's, in, in our case, projects we want to prove? And so we can actually get about half of the efficiency, uh, potentially a bit more through doing things like, hey, if you give us a geography where we can see through pulling scraping public data that this building is more than um, X number of years old, no thank you. Uh, we can see the population density is below a certain level, which means vacancy rates can be very high um, on commercial properties, no thank you. Um, and so we can have automated systems that literally keep from our very expensive human eyeballs, any project that doesn't get through some really key threshold gates. And we're getting better and better at understanding both, you know, when we shouldn't pull things out, you want to make sure you're not filtering out good projects, but even right. more importantly, pulling out bad ones before they even get to anyone. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. All right, welcome to episode 58 of Suncast. I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and hey, thank you for choosing this as a way that you invest an hour of your day. I truly am honored. As many of you know, the podcast started 58 episodes ago, mostly focused on Latin America. We've done a lot more focused lately, broadly on entrepreneurial topics and U.S. market stuff. Man, there's a lot happening in Latin America, though, and I'm hoping to bring more content here in the not-too-distant future about what's going on in Mexico with the latest auctions. Argentina just had uh, another landmark auction. Obviously, here in the U.S., we've got the U.S. trade case and tax reform that is kind of throwing a monkey wrench in the works on the 2018. So there's a lot going on and a lot that's exciting. But I'm going to try to focus here for you guys, okay? <laughs> I don't want to get too distracted on what all's happening in the news. I've mentioned in the past few podcasts that I have a few different themes going here in parallel. I promise not to get too schizophrenic on you, and I'll keep it to only three ongoing themes for the time being. My plan is to rotate every other week between the following three until I have finished these series, okay? We've already introduced the Solar Pioneer series back with Dan Sugar, who was in fact last week's guest in case you missed his awesome part two episode. So episodes 39 and now 57 are Dan Sugar. I highly recommend those. They're some of the most downloaded episodes to date. Next, we did episode 56 with Travis Simpkins to introduce the Solar Plus Storage series. And uh, we'll return to that one next week with an amazing interview that I did with an old friend and mentor of mine, uh, an industry leader, Mike Grunow at Vision Energy. So you definitely don't want to miss out on next week either. So that's two. And lastly, starting today, a solar finance series. And this is the third theme I'm introducing, beginning with today's guest. The current finance conversations that I have recorded focus on primarily where I've been focused, platforms and business models for what I consider to be the toughest segment to actually get deals done in finance. And that's commercial solar projects. I'm working on additional guests with broader experience, resi and utility, but for now we'll stay really focused on the ins and outs of commercial solar 
finance. Well, today on Suncast, we are digging into this commercial solar finance series, starting with the inner workings of a company many of you have probably begun to work with and who has clearly done a great job of gaining traction since its founding back in 2013. Brian Bursick and his co-founders have grown Wonder Capital to be one of the fastest growing and most useful platforms for funding commercial solar projects in the U.S. For you entrepreneurs out there, I ask Brian a ton of questions, specifically digging into the who, what, when, how, where, why of starting and growing this business. And while he can't get into specifics around revenue and growth numbers just yet, you should know that they've sourced hundreds of millions of dollars in project pipeline, approaching nearly a billion dollars. And they've grown their pipeline sourcing around 10x since last year. They've contracted tens of millions of dollars in commercial solar projects to date and have raised another tens of millions of dollars in project capital to date. These guys are on a tear and they are serious about changing the way commercial solar is funded. Some of the key points that Brian and I discuss go all the way back to his beginnings shortly after college, being at Bain, starting their green team. He touches on one of his, I think, uh, really insightful tropes, as he calls it, about career change, the skill sets and industries, uh, and how to leverage where you're at to transition into new and exciting opportunities without everything totally awry. I asked Brian, you know, what do you tell people that wonder is. And I think his answer is really insightful. I asked him about picking his co-founding team and Brian goes into detail about why he feels that that is the single most important decision that an entrepreneur makes. We touch on all the various pivots along the path of Wonder, finding its current business model, why Wonder is somehow different or better than other platforms like Mosaic. We even include why in world they focus at all on commercial over Resi and some of the other models that are out there. And we touch on a slew of business model questions, along with other questions that you know I like to ask, including what's it like to be in Techstars and some incredible book recommendations. Look, if you've ever gotten stuck trying to figure out how to convert from residential to commercial as a solar business model, or convert those projects to close, if you've had deals fall apart because the customer just didn't want to do a cash deal and neither of you could bring financing to bear, please stick around for today's episode because I think you'll want to hear what Brian and his team are up to. As always... If you have someone or something that you think should be on Suncast, or you have an addition to this finance series, or the Storage and Solar series, or the Founders series, the Solar Pioneer series, shoot me an email, LinkedIn, or go to the website and leave me a voicemail. My email is nico at mysuncast.com. I love hearing from you guys. It's one of the ways that I got to Brian. Thank you, Elias, for reaching out. It's one of the ways that I got to Travis. So many of you guys are really leaning in to help make Suncast a forum and a platform for content that you want to hear. All right, to that end, thanks again for setting aside this time in your day. I hope that you enjoy this week's episode of Suncast as much as I did. Let's jump in with Brian Bursick of Wonder Capital. Well, folks, I am super excited about today's guest. Brian Bursick is the co-founder and CEO at Wonder. Some of you have heard it as Wonder Capital. Brian has an incredible entrepreneurial background at a very young age and has really been moving and shaking at high corporate levels and starting companies since he got out of school. And he brings extensive finance 
and capital raising expertise to wonder from his private equity days in Bain and Company, as well as Village Ventures, which we might talk about. Notably, Brian's firm led early investments into commercial lending market leader on deck capital. Along with his finance background, Brian has also built and led several companies that take a look at software approaches to new markets, notably Simple Reach, and he was where he was the president and entrepreneur in residence. Comes from New York City, but moved his family all the way to Boulder, Colorado, where he is joining us live today. Brian, thanks for being on Suncast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Well, man, you have kind of a high finance management consulting pedigree. What in the world brought you into the solar world? Can you take me back to how you got into your foray into solar power, as it were? So after some time at uh, Bain & Company, I joined a former uh, Bain & Company alum at a venture capital firm, as you mentioned, in the in the lead-in. And that was my foray into startups and really technology-enabled startups. And spent four years backing largely financial technology companies in New York and, and got excited about what technology could do in that space, but also started to feel more and more and uh, actually started to talk to my co-founders about before we were co-founders, mm. um, trying to apply that in a way that aligned more with both, we hope, a great opportunity for our investors, both in the company and, and into our funds and the, the businesses we lend to, but also something that aligned with what we wanted to see in the world, what we thought were, were some of the big problems. And so I brought some lending and technology startup expertise and um, got together with some folks with some great solar expertise. That was how we got Wonder off the ground. You know, one of the things that caught my eye about your time at Bain, <laughs> you even had articles written about this, is you were part of the creation of what they call the green team. Can you tell me about the green team? Yeah. So when I joined right out of college at Bain's New York City office, myself and one of my colleagues, Blythe Adler, were surprised to find that there was no environmental organization inside of that office, um, which is to say whether it was office purchasing or travel decisions or probably most impactfully for Bain, launching and staffing uh, new offices, that there wasn't uh, any wearing the environmental hat, so to speak, at that table. And we uh, sought to change that. So we um, got a, a senior partner to provide some coverage and seniority uh, to our efforts. But uh, Blythe and I really pushed forward a first a New York-based effort. And then Bain asked us to launch the green team to all North American offices. So we uh, worked with the 27, I think it was at the time, different North American offices to launch green teams across their organization in North America and ended up being both a actually a cost savings due to all the efficiencies of the buildings and um, you know training places instead of instead of flying in some cases if they were close, but also a highlight of their recruiting and not only their green efforts, but also the way in which they um, empower young people in the organization to take action. How much of your time at Bain prepared you for what was to come, especially around, you know, you moved into private equity fundraising, dealing with investors. Was it a bra brave new world for you? You followed some of your Bain colleagues, but did you feel like you were prepared coming out of there or was it a yet another sort of uh, learning and business uh, knowledge experience for you? The way that, um, and this is another one of my, my tropes for uh, for young people who are unfortunate to uh, to, to get hour long coffees in which I give them advice. Um, but <laughs> but one of my uh, tropes about career change is we often have skill sets, let's say software engineering, and then industries that we know well, often including networks, but also specific knowledge. And mm -hmm. it's my relatively firm belief that you should change one of the two, but not both every time that you 
shift your career. And the reason being basically that unless you want to come in as a true intern or apprentice, which as you go through your career, sometimes is not palatable or possible, um, you have to bring some immediate to that organization, right? I.e. either skills or knowledge and network. On the flip side, you always want to have growth and you're not going to be satisfied. You're not going to be a great portion of your team, in my opinion, unless you feel like you're growing and being stretched. And so when I think about my Bain experience, I feel as though they gave me a analytical skill set, a presentation skill set, a kind of business literacy that I moved from large corporate as an industry to startups as an industry. Um, I spent a lot of time understanding startups in, as an industry and building a network and then switched my function inside of that industry when I went and became an operator inside of startups. And then I then switched my industry again, keeping my startup expertise to solar. So that's how I think about it. I think of it as kind of a baseline business education skill set that I could then switch industries because I could bring that to the table. What do you say at a dinner party that Wonder Capital is? Most of the time, what I talk about is the fact that until about 10 years ago, there was this big problem, systemic problem in lending to not people, but to businesses and other organizations like uh, hospitals, schools, universities, municipalities. And that fundamental issue is that in the consumer market, almost all of the people you want to lend to have a FICO score. And that's because you can run that FICO score in a very quantitative, scalable, cheap way. Um, I can now get my FICO score on Chase and American Express for free. Um, mm-hmm. There's no there's no one evaluating me to, to facilitate that, <laughs> right? That's, that's all um, quantitative variables. In the commercial space, because of the complexity of businesses, you simply can't run underwriting without doing actual work yourself. Um, and so because of that, only about the top 5 to 10% of commercial entities get an annual credit rating, um, oftentimes themselves actually paying for it. And so if you're taking 100 U.S. businesses randomly sampled that are interested, for example, in going solar, only about 5 to 10 percent of them are going to have a existing credit score that a bank or any other kind of lender can use to evaluate that business. And so about 10 years ago, when the lending clubs and the prospers of the world were doing this on the consumer side, businesses like OnDeck, uh, which, uh, as you mentioned, we backed in their Series A, and now they're a publicly traded company, uh, but also companies like Cabbage and Funding Circle, they went after this commercial problem with technology. And the problem was a little different than on the consumer side. It was, how do we evaluate with technology and efficiently the other 90% of businesses that you got to get the financials and get the data and do the work yourself? And the good news is that software is really good at these step function kind of quantitative, largely quantitative analyses. And a bunch of people on deck included kind of figured out how to do this, how to look at businesses that didn't have a credit score when you first evaluated the the deal. You have to do the work yourself. And um, that was a part of the uh, market that I was participating in for four years. And what we saw was that somehow this playbook that had been run in broad commercial lending had not been brought to commercial lending in solar. And because of that, the commercial solar market was growing at tepid rates relative to the residential space that has just been exploding. And so what we saw was an opportunity to take a relatively proven set of steps to uh, evaluate this businesses that were unrated and bring it into a space that we both think will be lucrative and exciting as a market. But more importantly, I think to us, um, we feel is one of the big levers to bend the carbon emission curve in the U.S. down. You know, you've mentioned we a couple of times. I mentioned that you did, you know, you moved your family out from New York City. Some might say the heart of the capital markets and some might say the best city in the world. 
Uh, I don't know that I would I would say that, but some might. And you've moved <laughs> to Boulder, which some might also say is the best city in the world. <laughs> I, I, I'd love to hear more about the decision to move to Boulder. Uh, and we'll, we'll probably get into some of the other questions I have around how you funded the company. But how'd you pick your co-founder team? Did you, did you mm. come up with this idea? Where, where did this where did the, the seed of this idea germinate? And who is the we that you keep referring to? Boulder was a, I think, a combination of two things. Um, one was my co-founders and I, I think we're, we're all getting to the point at which the shared apartment in the big city was no longer as exciting as a little more space and maybe a little more access to nature. You know, amongst the many places that would fit that description, Boulder's really unique in the sense that it brings together um, a really strong, a kind of outrageously strong in a per capita way, but uh, even not per capita, a really strong technology community, really anchored around Foundry Group being in Boulder and Techstars being uh, headquartered in Boulder. And there's just a fantastic ecosystem and a really outsized ecosystem of early stage entrepreneurs and lawyers and that angel investors, the the people you need to get a company off the ground. The other thing is that the National Renewable Energy Labs are 10 miles down the road and are probably our nation's best NGO in energy, I would argue. Uh, Rocky Mountain Institute is um, their biggest office is in Boulder. And so Mm. we felt as though um, the combination of tech expertise that we could pull in to do some of this automation and build some of this software that I was describing and happy to get into more detail there. Uh, we could hire yeah. those people, but we could also hire and access folks from NREL and RMI and um, kind of the uh, ecosystem that's been built around the strength that we have in the energy markets in Colorado. As it relates to the founding team, I actually believe firmly that the single most important decision you will make in your company is who your founding team is. It's incredibly hard to roll back. And uh, my experience having, you know, 175 companies in our portfolio at Village Ventures, so having seen a lot of outcomes, is that whatever the tactical description is of what the failure was, it is very, very often uh, founder or senior leadership discord as the root cause. And so, um, and I, I actually lesson, learned that lesson the hard way in my first startup. <laughs> um, so mm, I'd, I'd, right. I had my, my co-founding CTO left for Google with seven days notice. Dave and Sam, my two co-founders, first of all, when we got started, I think I had known them for five years or six years. Now we're at uh, 10 years or so. And so they were kind of longtime friends. We had collaborated on some things together. So I knew what our working dynamic was. And what I think is a little different, um, not as different as, as I think people might expect, but um, we actually agreed to work together before we had the approach really flushed out. We had some some important high-level guiding principles, um, things like the kind of market we wanted to go after, going um, after opportunities that we felt we were the right team for, which is to say we had specific skills or networks um, that we could bring to bear. Um, mm-hmm. But also, you know, as importantly, that it addressed that challenge that got us talking about a new company in the first place, which is, you know, finding something that you are proud to work on for decades and that you believe every morning when you wake up will have a positive impact on the world. Yeah. So this is a classic uh, get the right people on the bus approach to building a company that will last and then figuring out together the nitty gritty of what you're going to solve. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. You know, it's it fairly dramatic in the sense that we literally bounced around a couple different industries. We pretty quickly over the course of a weekend spent together in Boulder, narrowed in on solar. But going from solar to what we're doing now, and I can, you know, go through some of those uh, dead ends and, and, you know, kind of funny early stories. That was, I think, a process that reflects the fact that your initial assumptions about the market, whatever you come out with, and you know, Reed, Reed Hoffman's talked about this, if you're not embarrassed by your launch product, then you launch too late. 
the idea that you would have it nailed down, that it wouldn't change over time is actually kind of a strange one. You know, the idea that you're going to get maybe 50% of your assumptions wrong at the start and you're going to have to listen really well and change quickly and iterate and experiment. Um, and what you end up with is going to look pretty different. I think it's probably more the norm. What did you go into that weekend, uh, the weekend where you really did brainstorming to set on solar? What did you go in thinking Wonder was going to be? So it's interesting. Each, each founder basically had a, a, a thing <laughs> that, they, that, they wanted, <laughs> that they wanted to convince the other founders uh, that, that we should do. So first we sat down and, and kind of flushed out that framework and a little bit of what kind of company we wanted to build and who we wanted to be and you know where we wanted to take it. But once we got to uh, what we wanted to solve for using that framework, I think the thing that separated my idea, which was around uh, enabling technology for um, the sensory disabled, uh, so people that can't hear well, see well, their handshake, et cetera, mm, yeah. um, often excluded from things like iPhones that increasingly are how we connect. Anyway, I was really excited about that. I love the elders. So uh, that was my idea. <laughs> um, yeah. Sam's idea was um, around mobile healthcare, basically, particularly in developing countries countries. And Dave was coming out of uh, the DOE's top lab at Lawrence Berkeley. So he was knee deep in solar and just an absolute, um, you know, as so many of us, you know, in the industry are certainly everyone at Wonder, just a fervent believer in the future of solar. And um, the thing that really separated those three ideas, because I think all really worthwhile and you could wake up every morning and be proud of what you were doing um, and all really interesting markets um, and kind of set up along the technology startup spectrum that that, that we all mm. had experienced kind of doing and running, you know, billion dollar markets, technology enabled, exciting spaces, et cetera. Um, the thing that brought us to wonder was really us being the right people for that company. I had this background in commercial lending. As we got into commercial solar, we realized that financing was was probably the biggest problem. That's what SEIA seems to think. It's what RMI has published and said. Um, and you know, I had this really relevant background there. Um, Dave had just come from the DOE, as I mentioned, and right. um, it just it just it felt like we were the right people to do it. So so that was really the defining narrowing criteria was us feeling like, you know, if you, if you took a hundred software teams, we actually are kind of weirdly suited to do this. I could get this wrong, but effectively wonder provides debt for these types of projects that are hard to create commercial underwriting products around, right? Banks don't really get it. So they offer uh, a different type of product that covers their behind. So you guys bring, I'm going to say crowdsource, but investors source private debt to projects and you hold them on your balance sheet. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have, uh, after we went through that process that I described, um, we moved into a fund model. And what the fund does is we just set up a, a special purpose vehicle that, you know, is um, kind of stands on its own two feet and it has really two things that it does. Um, it sells notes to investors, uh, mainly through our website, um, wondercapital.com. Um, but also increasingly through institutional channels. Um, but people are coming in and getting a projected yield on a note. Um, that's the investment that they're making. And this is very similar to what Lending Club has been doing for, for more than a decade now. We're then taking that capital and within 30 days, we're deploying it into a project that, as you say, a business is looking uh, or, you know, a municipality, hospital, et cetera, is looking to put up solar. Um, they don't want to pay the half million dollar average project size that we finance. And so, you know, just like a home mortgage, um, they're interested in spreading that out over a period and, and paying interest on it. Um, and the, um, you know, once that loan is made to the to the business or the entity, those monthly payments then support that projected yield. And what's kind of great about the fund 
fund structure is we can have that really standardized, fast process on the borrower side. But on the investor side, every new investor that comes in diversifies your risk. So as we add a project, it's not that your note is supported by just the project you funded. It's supported by all previous projects and all future projects. Um, so you just have a pro rata share against this growing portfolio of solar project financing. For the uninitiated, how is this different from the, the traditional kind of third party model, the PPAs? And how is it different from what a bank might traditionally offer in a capital or an operating lease? So we actually see, you know, still in the commercial market, I, you know, I think we're seeing uh, a bit of a move um, away from PPAs, uh, or at least the dominance of PPAs to more loans, more cash purchases in the residential space. And you see some of that in commercial as well. Um, but there still are a lot of entities, um, first ones that don't have tax burdens, like hospitals and universities, uh, but simply businesses that don't want to deal with the hassle of, you know, operations and maintenance, um, like the simplicity of the PPA or the lease structure. So we actually do work with uh, a lot of folks just to provide the debt alongside normally a tax equity partner, or a sponsor equity partner um, that's using that tax credit and kind of owning the system and will lend, let's say, 60% of that project. Um, so that's the way that we'll work with uh, third-party ownership. Um, we are seeing, though, that particularly for businesses, as the solar market matures, um, the uh, wariness around the ITC has moved to greed around the ITC, at least increasingly. Mm -hmm. So when you come in and someone got pitched a PPA and we come in and show them a loan product where they're the owner and on a half million dollar system, they get $150,000 tax credit in year one, not to mention they get five years of depreciation, right? Um, mm, yeah. That, that, that in, in a lot of cases they, they can use. And unlike residential where that is, you know, a little scary territory, let's say, for your average homeowner, uh, most businesses of some scale have a finance group or an outsourced CFO, right? Someone who gets excited about these things, not frightened by them. So um, we do see the future of the space, particularly for commercial, where they should be able to use the tax credit and have the savvy to do it. We do think that ownership by the businesses is the long-term model that will win. Very interesting. In the meantime, you basically, you serve a you provide a service that bank that traditional banks aren't willing to provide. That's right. I'm sorry you asked about traditional banks. So um, the way traditional banks think about this is um, the way that they would think about a loan really to do just about anything else. Um, so if you are a business and you go to your local bank or credit union and say, I want to build a half million dollar solar system, which is, again, our average, um, they're going to say that sounds great in the same way they would say that about you expanding your fleet or hiring more people. Um, right. But they're not going to be able to underwrite that. They're simply going to think about that as, you know, a, a blank line of credit to the business. And you're not going to like the rate you get over a long term if that's the way the bank's going to underwrite you. So generally what that bank or credit union will say is, well, give us a piece of collateral that we can underwrite, that we understand. And that's going to be real estate in almost all cases. Uh, mm -hmm. Either either real estate that the commercial entity owns directly, i.e. you've paid down some of a commercial property loan and you can add to your principal. If that's the same lender, that can be easy. If you have two lenders and you need a lien approval, that can be hard. Um, the other one is a personal guarantee by the business principals, but that is putting your own family's home up you know, experience some energy savings. And listen, no one loves solar driven energy savings more than me. But if you're a small <laughs> business owner or medium sized business owner, probably not going to put up the house your kid sleeps under for 10% or 20% energy savings. So, so the advantage that Wonder has alongside our speed and, you know, we, we uh, have experience and hope some, some really good service. Uh, our predominant value prop is that we know how to underwrite and value the system itself. So just like equipment financing, just like auto financing, just like real estate, 
if you can use the use of proceeds as your collateral, that's a really appealing dynamic for the borrower. Hey, you didn't pay me right. in for what you got for the loan, then I get it back, right? That's a, that's a straightforward pitch. And our differentiation is largely in our ability to ensure that in the case of default, God forbid, um, we have made sure whether it's hardware warranties, great installer partners, solid economics, um, good O&M policies and insurance, we've made sure that there's a really solid monetizable asset that we can go collateralize. And because right. of that, we don't have to ask for a personal guarantee. We don't have to ask for additional liens. Um, so basically, we can come in and get this thing done just on the use of proceeds, like an equipment financing, um, as opposed to asking you for, in a lot of cases, some pretty painful collateral. How does Wonder differentiate from the mosaics of the world? Like, let's look at some of the incumbents in the market. And yeah, mosaic is focused on residential, but now they're quickly becoming one of the large players, both the residential and commercial. Yeah. So uh, Mosaic's a really interesting story in that they actually started doing commercial and municipal projects of a similar scale to what we do now. Precisely. And um, they were uh, uh, using a, a kind of a, a clever California-only um, fundraising law to do about, if I'm not mistaken, uh, about $20 million of crowd finance, solar investing, uh, let's say, uh, I want to say four or five years ago at this point. Um, they successfully showed the appetite on the investor side for these assets, and they gave us a really good sense of where to put our terms. What they got out of the commercial market uh, for um, is actually the problem that we came in to solve, which is they had really high transaction costs per deal. So they mm -hmm. came in thinking, we're going we're gonna to build the leading crowdfinance solar site, and they did. Uh, without a doubt. But when they went to deploy that capital, they found what um, other people had found who weren't using technology. These smaller deals are really hard to do if you're not automating a bunch of them. They basically found that they had a great, um, I think, touch and understanding of the consumer solar space and enthusiasm there and how to talk to that market and saw in the residential space, you had this easy FICO-based financing. You go out and get FICO-based money, you run someone's FICO on an iPad, um, you can sell these things in an incredibly turnkey way. And so they actually moved out of the commercial market into residential to get away from the project that we came in to solve. And you guys effectively solved it, or at least you're attempting to solve it, through creating a software platform that has an underlying underwriting algorithm that helps you quickly assess the value, not just of the asset, but the underlying credit risk of the counterparty. Yeah, I, I would say that there are um, there are two big levers, and then you know there's a couple of different places in the in the value chain of being a lender. Let's say that that you know I can talk about what we're actually doing. Um, the two big levers, though, and we're looking for about 10x efficiency relative to just a project finance traditional underwriting firm that has you know well-paid people in suits. We're looking for about 10x advantage relative to what they can do as an absolute minimum and still be profitable on a deal. Um, we've seen that's around two and a half million to five million. Um, so we want to be profitable doing quarter million dollar deals. Um, I think we get a good bit of that efficiency through filtering out really cleverly the deals that we shouldn't be spending any time on. So when people think of efficiencies, they often think of, well, how do I make this process more efficient? And that's great. But the other question is, how do you do less of those? <laughs> right? How do you avoid right. the known the known knows in, in our case, projects we want to prove? And so we can actually get about half of the efficiency, uh, potentially a bit more through doing things like, hey, if you give us a geography where we can see through pulling scraping public data that this building is more than um, X number of years old, no, thank you. Uh, we can see the population 
population density is below a certain level, which means vacancy rates can be very high um, on commercial properties. No, thank you. Um, and so we can have automated systems that literally keep from our very expensive human eyeballs any project that doesn't get through some really key threshold gates. And we're getting better and better at understanding both, you know, when we shouldn't pull things out, you want to make sure you're not filtering out good projects, but even right. more importantly, pulling out bad ones before they even get to anyone. Now, once they get to our team, we do actually do a fairly traditional underwriting process. The data gathering is not, but the kind of research and consideration would look uh, familiar to a traditional um, solar underwriter. But then once we say go on a project, legal, deal execution, um, filings, various filings, and then ongoing loan servicing and tax documentation is all completely automated. Um, so, uh, there are two pieces there and what we've seen is that we're getting about, you know, two to three X efficiency on the filtering, um, three to four X efficiency on the automation. And that leaves you in that kind of 10 X total. Cause you know, obviously multiplying those two together. So it's mm -hmm. only looking at the important, the, the really good ones and then being really efficient, looking at them, uh, collectively, we've been able to get profitable on that quarter million dollar deal. So we've hit our goal in the last four years on that. It might on the outside look to someone like your customer as an installer, but I would challenge that your customer is someone else. I'll ask you the question directly. Who's your customer? Is it the investor, the end user, the building owner? Is it the installer? What, what do you see sitting at the at the helm of Wonder Capital? I think at the end of the, it's, it's, it's always such an interesting question um, and I won't balk on it, uh, but it's such an interesting question when you are effectively a marketplace in the sense that you have, you're matching supply and demand, you're an intermediary between two parties trying to make that a really efficient connection. Because in so many ways, of course, are the people providing the capital and the people borrowing the capital and paying the interest rates are you know literally equally important. That said, we, I think, feel as though Working with businesses, convincing businesses, you know, developing really efficient structures for businesses to put more solar up in this country and reduce our reduction on hydrocarbon, the closest thing to what we really care about, what our mission and purpose is as a company. So although the capital market partners are not in any way disadvantaged, we are trying to make it uh, a win-win on both sides and match their interests as best we can. I do think that there's some emotional, visceral connection to building a solar system and getting it done relative to uh, putting together a really fantastic financing facility. Um, so I would say just by virtue of closeness to purpose and mission, you know, getting those actual systems up on the roofs, that's, that's I think, mm -hmm. where, the, where the rubber meets the road for us. Very interesting. So that leaves us with end user and installer. By the virtue of your answer, it seems like your marketing strategy would be to pull in end users, but your distribution strategy is installers. Is that accurate? I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about commercial and the other thing along with financing is customer acquisition uh, that really right. needs to be cracked or at least scaled in some meaningful way because we see a lot of, you know, shoe leather sales forces and not a lot of um, adoption of technology, which you know, we think there's some efficiency gain there. You know, because we're not going to have a feed on the street sales force in 27 states, um, the really the, the only way, you know, I think to aggregate a lot of borrower demands, um, if you're not a Sunrun or a Vivint or a Solar City, is, you know, using this partnership network, this dealer network in which, um, you know, they're incented to have a great financing offer um, with hopefully some, you know, really supportive and high service counterparties for these half million dollar deals. And we've seen that they don't. In, in almost all cases. Um, and we obviously are excited to, to see the incoming business. Um, so that right. is our distribution model, I think, far more than our customers. 
Um, but mm -hmm. I will say that some of the most important relationships are obviously these great partners we have that might bring in over the course of a year, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 businesses that are, that are, that are of no interest. No doubt about it. Yeah. yeah. Brian, thank you for being forthcoming about how you think about not just uh, scaling your business, but who you're serving, as I think a lot of companies get it wrong when they think about who their customer is and what the purpose is. You know, you guys have seen some tremendous growth. If, if my numbers are correct, you're looking at 300% year over year in terms of capital invested. Is that right? And something like 10x on investors? Yeah, yeah. We've had um, pretty spectacular growth around a couple of different of our KPIs. I think uh, it kind of ranges mm -hmm. from 3x a year to 6x a year sort of growth um, in the last 12 months. Fantastic. And do you do you disclose how many installers you're working with? Is that something that you you're willing to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have. Uh, I always forget what the the most current number is, but uh, I think the most recent one I'm quoting is 127 installer and developer wow. partners in 27 yeah. states. Um, and and that's not, by the way, not only someone that has been approved to be a partner, but that has actually sent us a project that we worked on together. So it's a fairly qualified number. Appreciate it. that. Was my next qualifying question? Is how many people signed up in quotes to be right. a Wonder partner? Right. Now, one thing I'd love to know is why do they think that working with Wonder gives them differentiation in the market, and how do you help them get comfortable with how to sell what is a very complex product? So I think the the things that they appreciate about what we do is one and simply they want to have a um, non cash option when they come to the table. And uh -huh. as we all know, tax equity can be hard to come by. And so, you know, having any kind of financing offer is, uh, from what we've heard from our, you know, the hundred plus partners, um, a really important way, maybe the most important way to in increase close rate, which is to say, if you go to someone and say, Hey, it's going to be a half a million dollars, good luck figuring out how to pay for it. That is a meaningfully worse sale than, Hey, it's going to be half a million. And let me show you some preliminary, uh, details around what our financing partner could do on a, on a monthly payment schedule. Right. Um, so, so that, that's just the core is the PPAs are hard. Other people don't have these, you know, small commercial deals. Cause again, they're hard to do. You have to do the underwriting yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at best they would say, Hey, I know that, you know, such and such credit union has worked with people on that, but you're probably going to have to put up some property. So most of it, I think, is that they know that they have a higher close rate with commercial deals when our offer is sitting alongside them. Um, mm. I, I, I do think also that they like the idea of bringing this investment tax credit and this big year one hit that's positive, because I think one of the hardest things about the solar sale from what we've seen being so involved in it is that it's a fairly long term payout, right? Over 25 years, making a project ROI look good is has been incredibly easy for quite a while, right? It's going to particularly a business who needs to sign up for this year's, maybe next year's goals, but you know, telling them about five or 10 year down the road upside, they don't want to hear about it, right? They don't want to hear about payback periods that are you know, five years out or seven years out. But when they can come into that next finance meeting and say, I think I found a way, a way to in this year, uh, in this quarter, in a lot of cases, because um, you can do these things pretty quickly when they're smaller, um, get us a $150,000 tax credit 
on that average half million deal I referenced, or if they're doing a million dollar deal, a $300,000 tax credit. So I think the sense of urgency and lining up against what a, what a corporate finance group really cares about, which is killing this year's numbers, um, bringing yeah. a product that gives them the ITC, as opposed to giving it to some tax equity guy in New York, making 18%, that is a pitch that we've seen resonates as well. So I think those are the two things. That is really interesting. And I appreciate not only the disclosure, but thinking through their end customer sees the offer, I think is, a really important piece for listeners or installers or, or you know company founders uh, who are hearing us uh, in this discussion. Wonder is a startup in all senses, and you guys have made uh, a lot of strides. I'd love to hear from your perspective as a CEO. Who will you be in three to five years? So in three to five years to achieve our goal of you know, we talk about cracking the commercial solar market. And what we mean is really getting to that 3x over five-year growth that all the other portions of the solar market have seen based on, you know, all the cost curves and, uh, you know, increasing sophistication that we all know a lot about. Um, and that requires, by virtue of it being a $5 billion underserved market, definitionally billions of dollars, you know, being uh, lent out in that space. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if we're hitting our goals, we need to be lending billions of dollars if we're talking about a five-year time frame, because otherwise we simply aren't servicing the market that we set out to service and and crack. Um, the other thing that I would say is that we would really like to be adding a lot more value to the projects and to our partners, whether it be the businesses or uh, particularly our developer and installer partners, um, because we see that that is really the place that we need to establish our value as a company is being the best financing partner for every commercial solar deal in the U.S. That, that's the goal. And if we can provide quoting tools, if we can have standardized contracts, if we can have CRM systems that make submission of data easier, um, if we can help with procurement, uh, because we'll have scale that definitionally none of our partners have because we're the aggregate of them. Um, mm-hmm. Those are some places that we feel as though we can help commercial solar push forward and also, frankly, strengthen our ties to those customers and partners such that when they go to do the financing piece, it's a no-brainer and really easy to use Wonder. Does that open you up to moving beyond the the sort of um, smaller tier under 500K or 500K to a million sort of accredited retail investor to looking at that mid-market and institutional capital for scale? So um, I think the the history of alternative lending platforms would lead you to believe that if you're going to put billions of dollars uh, to work each year, you're almost certainly going to have to tap the, the large scale institutional capital markets. Um, that said, we think there's a lot of value in opening up solar investing to as many people as we can in the U.S., and um, I don't see a future in which we uh, stop doing that. So uh, I do think to hit those goals, we'll need institutional capital, but I don't think there'll be a thematic move um, away from what we're doing today. What areas of business do you see increased investment in the business itself? We're talking like you know the, your EPZ partners specifically, the folks that you're selling to, uh, that you're distributing through. What areas do you see increased investment having the greatest leverage for them? Particularly, I will say first that I I am biased here, but I do feel as though residential installers increasingly are investing just in commercial 
Um, they understand that up to about 500kW or today's pricing about a million dollar system, they understand that that's the most likely place for them to see meaningful growth, uh, particularly mm-hmm. in some of the more mature residential markets. So we're trying to work with folks alongside them to figure out how we can support them in doing that, kind of to this idea that I just mentioned of being more holistic partners. Um, that, that said, um, I think if you're talking about something more horizontal, like soft cost, wise, you know, the customer acquisition, you know, efficiency just just has to go up, I think, for uh, for commercial solar to grow in the way that it needs to. Um, so folks that are in that market, that seems to me, and you know, we're trying to make financing really efficient and easy. Uh, I don't see someone doing that in customer acquisition. And I think the folks that that crack that nut of how to use technology, how to make it as turnkey as possible, um, are going to see a lot of growth. Because if you look at the RMI data, they're suggesting customer acquisition is in the 6 to 8% range. On a half million dollar average system, right, that's like, Forty thousand—that's thirty to forty thousand dollars per project. Mm-hmm. Um, that means that means you could pay a salesperson sixty to eighty grand, and they'd only have to close two projects before they were, you know. And not that you just want to bring in what you're paying a salesperson, but you know, point, right. point being, those are some those are some pretty wild customer acquisition costs. Uh, you can do you can do a hell of a lot of digital marketing with with thirty to forty grand in, per project. That is the truth. Right. Um, yeah. And so we see a lot of low hanging fruit there. You know, the, the other thing that we've continued to see, but I think um, is, is worth pointing out is the installation efficiencies just since we've been in business are just uh, um, astounding. You know, we've seen mm. like two to three X um, increases in kind of the speed and whether it's some of the prefab stuff that's starting to come out, but just the sophistication around racking and, you know, microinverters being included just, um, and some of that's just standardization and maturation of an industry that you'll see anywhere. Um, but I think if you're installing really, really efficiently and using your crews well, and you're putting some money into, into getting customer acquisition costs down, those feel like really good places in the next year or two. And then the only other thing I would throw out there is in the higher rate case geographies, um, starting to figure out how to use demand shaving storage, but kind of starting to wedge into, you know, insurance fundamentally based storage, things like cold storage, things that have to stay up mm-hmm. and just starting, right. starting to get some experience in pairing PV plus S. Um, I think in three or four years is going to give you a lead in what will be, we think, the next big market or at least the next adjacent market, which is adding storage, not for shaving or insurance, but to normal right. systems for you know time of use uh, tariffs and those sorts of things. Do you guys currently support projects that include storage or lighting? We do. Um, we actually, for all of our funds, have liberty to use up to 30% of uh, the capital on non-solar expenses. Um, you basically need to do that to do any projects because of um, both carports uh, and roof repairs being so common uh, alongside installations. If you can only do 90% and you have to go get 10% elsewhere, that, that's not helpful. Um, but we have done demand shaving uh, storage. Uh, we've done some energy efficiency. So, yeah, we have the flexibility as long as the core asset we're underwriting and the collateral is the solar project. Um, yeah. we, we can add a few things to it. So let's move into a section I call lessons learned. I'd love to hear what are some key lessons or takeaways from some of the most important mentors in your life or career to date? So that lesson around working with, and I'll, I'll broaden it from founders to just people in your in your circle of trust, if you will, you know, show me the five people you spend the most time with and I'll show you who you are sort of, sort of advice um, right. is one of those old truisms that you keep, you know, bumping your head up against um, and, and realizing is actually um, not, um, you know, pithy and annoying as advice, but, but deeply true. Um, so I think, you know, th- through the progression of my 
um, you know, building teams and deciding to join teams um, and backing uh, companies, um, I again and again have seen that uh, the quality of the people involved is uh, the determining factor. Kind of this tension and this idea of um, presuming a lot of your assumptions are wrong, um, being willing to move quickly with data, but also having underlying principles that are cornerstones of what you're doing and guide your broad decisions is something that uh, getting that balance right and figuring out what is truly important and mm-hmm. what is an assumption or an implication or a 10,000 foot detail is something that we continue to, to work on at Wonder. But I feel like uh, those examples, for example, of using an LLC with 99 investors or trying to right. package it as a community thing or selling projects, we could pivot inside of all of those ideas because we simply knew that we that the this capital market um, hadn't gone to commercial solar, that if you could get the two together, um, there should be a, a really big market there. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, keeping that core and defining that well, along with some operating principles that we have, has allowed us to be really flexible on the product side. Those two to me, I think if you can get those two right, um, you can set up some guiding principles, but also be really flexible and get some great, committed, smart people around you, you think you're going to be okay. I mentioned that you moved to Denver. One of the reasons was uh, also that Techstars and Foundry Group is there. You get to work with world-renowned investors like Brad Feld. How is that? How would you compare that versus you know the decision not to move to Silicon Valley, for example? I think Boulder has you know almost just the right amount, uh, or maybe another way to think of it is the um, minimum viable amount, or it's over the minimum viable amount mm-hmm. of mentors and startup expertise and investors such that you can have that supportive, empathetic community um, when you need it going through the roller coaster of a startup. Um, But I think to its credit does not have the distraction and sometimes frenetic moving focus, uh, sometimes hype cycle of a place like the Valley or New York City or Boston for that matter. Um, Mm. So I get a lot of value out of dropping into those places for a week and having an incredibly meeting filled, not, you know, a lot of manager time, a lot of meeting time, not a lot of sit down and solve problems time. And then being able to come back to the relative oasis um, and heads down focus of being in a place that's not as frenetic as a startup ecosystem. Um, right. while, while also having enough high quality people that, for example, I can have a, a 10 person CEO forum that we meet monthly and they're all incredibly high quality and doing relevant things. That's the alchemy that has worked really well for us at being in Colorado. What book would you give yourself if you go back to 21 year old Brian coming out of college, recent grad? How would you educate yourself knowing what you know now? Book or books, I guess. Carlota Perez, who wrote a book called Technology Revolutions and Financial Capital. She's an academic. And um, it has been called the VC Bible, uh, particularly in New York City, uh, by a few folks. Union Square Ventures, for example, kind of famously gives it to every new employee. But it Mm -hmm. describes the interactions between new technology cycles and the capital markets and society in a way that really galvanized my view of how technology is brought into a uh, a society into, um, you know, our world, uh, in a lot right. of ways. Um, and the other one would be Nassim Taleb's anti-fragile. So he's a couple mm. books that kind of built to anti-fragile black swan, probably being the most famous and his first on this subject. But, um, a lot of the, the concepts around, um, how to think about kind of edge risk and probabilities, but particularly the idea that 
It's actually hardship that that makes us grow. It makes us better. You know, seeking out pleasure is a good way to plateau as a person. You know, that flows back a little bit into that. Always have a new area that you're kind of in the deep. You know, you've been thrown in the deep end of the right. pool. That has been for me kind of guiding principle in my life since um, he both explains it well, but also puts it into mathematics, which which appeals to me. I love it. Is there a habit or a consistent practice that you feel like has really given you a bigger impact in your life? I meditate. I also work out fairly regularly, but I would I would generalize that to daily self-care. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the things that gets overly, you know, kind of lionized in the startup community and the solar community is, you know, never sleeping and, you know, working 100-hour weeks and flying at crazy hours and, you know, flying from, from six different places to each other. And, of course. Um, Ultimately, that's going to be something you're going to pay back plus interest has been my experience. Um, And the second thing is um, that CEO forum that I'm in, having a group that you can get together with and open up and be honest and trust and share what you're struggling with, that has been uh, a godsend for me. So I I think if you're doing both of those things, you're you're probably okay. Yeah, it reminds me of the idea that's really popular in the in certain circles of the mastermind, right? As we wrap up, Brian, is there a place that you are most often able to be found? Is that Twitter, LinkedIn, just email? I am a fairly active Twitter guy. I'm uh, at Bersic, uh, B-I-R-S-I-C on Twitter, and I'm Brian uh-huh. at wondercapital.com. And we'll certainly link to those in the in the show notes. Well, as we wrap up, let's end today, as I always do, with a bold prediction. Brian, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I think that the switch to a distributed edge-based grid will be faster and more tipping point-like and sooner than the broad market seems to presume. So my bold prediction is that particularly time of use tariffs, but generally a fight against the rise of solar will in fact enable a rise of battery by charging for some of those services. And that within 10 years, we will see PV plus S starting to get connected and once that happens, we will see a much more rapid shift to what some people like to call the smart grid, although I, we find that term pretty annoying here because it's poorly described. But a lot of resources across the grid on the edge trading with each other bi-directional as intelligent as the Internet. Um, we think that's that's a decade away. Um, I think in our space, that's a pretty bold prediction. Fantastic. Brian, I think you are on to something there. When that happens, we'll certainly highlight and uh, talk about it here on Suncast. In the meantime, we will have to re-listen to this action-packed episode chock full of goodies. So thank you so much for being on Suncast with us today, and we look forward to having you back sometime. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.